Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You're listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a conversation with a guest sharing their story and insights about what can help when you're adapting to loss. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Mike Bonikowski, a caregiver who provides direct support for people living with developmental disabilities. Welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, Mike. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So at Grief Stories, we believe that sharing stories helps people find hope and healing when they're dealing with the death of a loved one or someone who's important in their life. And we're talking today about your experience supporting people who live with intellectual disabilities and and different developmental disabilities. And um, so you have you have some experience in this field. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your your background? Um, so I've been working professionally with people with uh, uh, developmental disabilities for 15 years um, in all different environments. Uh, I worked in hospitals. I've worked in schools. I've worked in treatment centers. Uh, but for the past 10 years, um, I have been working with people in their homes. Um, with a um, community living Dufferin uh, based out of Orangeville, Ontario. Um, so I get to go in Monday to Friday and just share, share people's lives. Every, every part I just nice. get, I get to be there for all of it. Um, so consider myself very lucky. So you get to go in and provide daily support and be with people and just be part of their lives that helps them get along in the world in a yep. way that that suits them with whatever their needs are whatever they might happen to need i'm i'm there when i'm needed and when i'm not needed i try not to be there yeah yeah it's interesting concept right of not overstepping when we're helping people um i have uh, three words that i try to remember when i'm supporting people in whatever capacity i do that as a social worker um i want to equip people with tools and strategies they can use. I want to empower them to use them. And then I want to release them to go and do their work with it. And uh, it sounds like- I love that. Yeah. It sounds like we work in a similar way then. I think so. And I mean, working in a group home, there's always an impulse to want to control as much as possible because uh, it can be a chaotic environment. Um, and- my realm of responsibility is a little vague. It's sort of everything that happens at the end of the day. Um, if something went wrong, it's kind of on me. Um, so the impulse there is to try to control everything um, so that you don't get in trouble. Uh, but that impulse is something that you have to fight every single day because that's how you get into institutional scenarios where it's not a home anymore. Um, so it is it is a matter of stepping back as much as possible, um, being invisible as much as you can, uh, being there when the support's needed, but knowing that most of the time the support is not needed 
it'll be taken if it's offered, but usually it's not actually needed. And when it comes to grieving, I think that's even, that's absolutely key. Um, because I, I grief is the ultimate chaotic force, I think. Um, and it's something that we want to control and we want to box up and we, we, we want to, we want to package, um, it's not, it's not going to work. It's not going to stay in that box. Um, and you're going to do damage to the people that, that, that you're supporting. It's true. It feels like sometimes we get into this power struggle where we feel like we need to control things. And that usually comes from a place of fear, fear of the unknown or fear of pain. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Fear of being out of control. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in your experience in this, community, uh, working with folks with lots of different abilities. What are some of the things that help people be with their grief and move through it in a way that is works, works for them? I think the most important thing to remember is that everyone is operating on a different sense of scale in terms of time, especially, uh, in terms of the amount of time it takes people to process things cognitively and emotionally, um, every single person's different. And with the people that I support, um, their brains just work in a different way. Like we have been conditioned us neurotypical people, um, to function on a certain timetable. And one of the gifts of the community that I support is that in many ways they are removed from that. Like they, they live on a different, on a different schedule. Um, and it's often one that moves much slower with us. Like we are compartmentalizing and we are getting back to, uh, to, uh, work. Um, it's all about functionality. It's about productivity. It's about what you can produce. And for many of the people that I support for better or, or for worse, um, that is not how they value things. So I'd say the most important thing is to give them time. And that time may be, it may seem like a geological time frame to us, but we can't impose that on them. Um, and that can be an extremely frustrating thing because if it's someone you care about, you want them to heal. You want them not to get over it, but you want them to address it. You want them to begin to heal, but you can't rush that. Mm-hmm. And there's no assumptions at all. Like it's different for every single person and you just have to be there and you need to know the person well enough to know what their grieving is going to look like, which is generally extremely different. A lot of the people that I support are nonverbal. They've never spoken. They don't use words. Often I have trouble telling if they're in physical pain, let alone emotional pain. And it just comes down to spending the hours and the days and the weeks and the months in that person's presence and learning to read the language that they are speaking to you and then learning to give them what they need. If that's even something that I can give them. And sometimes it's not. So it sounds like, I mean, it, with grief in general, there is no one time frame and it always takes longer than we think it will to work through our story of loss and find a way to, to accept the loss as part of our life. You know, I think that's true for all humans. Um, And the bigger the attachment, the deeper the love, the more pain the loss creates and um, the longer it takes to adapt to the loss. 
right? And so when we're talking about folks with different abilities, then we're also talking about people who have a different sense of time, just like you said, which can stretch it out in a way that feels even far beyond what, as you said, neurotypical people might think is, you know, okay or normal. And I think what you're saying really is we have to look at each individual that's grieving, look at their personality, their development, their characteristics and their needs and say, what's normal? What's what's appropriate for this person? And it might look quite different, not only from what, what would be for us, but also what would be from the next person and the next person and the next person. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and I think I should, I should, I should, I should also say that sometimes that time frame seems to be accelerated, um, in a way that seems inappropriate or offensive to us. Like it, it scandalizes us because you feel like there should be more grieving going on here. Um, and it's very important not to put that judgment on, on someone else because you don't know, you don't know. And it's, also, none of your damn business at the end of the day. Like, <laughs> right? You know, it's so interesting because I I hadn't really thought about it that way when you were speaking earlier. I was thinking about it being prolonged in a different way, but mm-hmm. I can also see that sometimes people with different abilities live in the moment much more so than the rest of us, and uh, or many of us, I should say. And mm-hmm. so that actually makes a lot of sense to me that it would be processed fairly quickly because it's here and then it's not, and then it's done. Yes. Right. Yep. Interesting angle. And, and I appreciate that your years of experience in the community brings that to light, because I think that's part of the thing is that many of us haven't spent time with people with different abilities and we just don't know what we don't know. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing that you were mentioning was this idea of spending time with people to get to know them so that you can learn what they need. And and I think that's so critical because in a community of people with developmental disabilities, we are looking at a wide range of individuals and a wide range of skills and abilities and talents and needs. And we can't just assume that people with developmental disabilities all need one thing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is the curse of my field is that we want to make everything efficient. And the way to do that is to have one size fits all. And it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for anything. It doesn't work for anything. And the more you try to push it, the more problems it, it, uh, it uh, creates. You, you have to hold these things loosely and be willing to admit you're wrong over and over and over again. Yep. Yeah. It's not easy. No. And I think too, in some cases, particularly where people are nonverbal and less responsive in ways that we uh, look for, that we're conditioned to look for, noticing their cues, noticing the language that they speak. I love the way you said that, right? Um, And learning their language really is so critical in terms of being a good support to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as as an example of that, I support a man who is currently grieving sort of in advance. Um, he is a man who is very, very close to his, to his parents. Um, he's in his late forties now and his parents are in their late seventies, eighties. Um, and he used to see them every single weekend. He would go home on Friday, come home on, on, uh, on a Sunday. And that was a pillar of his life. Um, 
that his mother has Parkinson's and his dad is looking after her. um, And they just can't have him over as often anymore. So now it's down to about every once a month. And to him, that is, that is a form of death. And, and he knows that he will see them less and less, and then he won't see them at all anymore. He's not expressing this verb verbally, but it's very clear that he, that he knows what is happening and that it's, it's the great grief of his life. Now, this man has something called echolalia, which I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, you sort of repeat everything that's said to you. Um, so he is always talking. He's, he's very, very verbal. And he's always making these statements that sound very confident and sure, but it's really a form of questioning. And if you answer the questions that he's asking, it doesn't satisfy him. He's not, he's not looking for a verbal answer, even though he's asking a verbal question. And when I first started supporting him, he was always asking, when am I going to see mom and dad again? And I'd give him the exact date. We would call them, we'd nail it down. And um, it would not give him any, any piece. If anything, it would, it would make it worse. He would just ask more and more and more and become more and more anxious and start to have more issues with his body just because it was breaking down due to stress. Because, um, and I, I realized much, much later that what would actually help him, he is blind and has trouble getting around on his, on his, on his own. And I realized that he was often holding out his hands. And one day I took his hand and he, he took mine and he placed it on his wrist in a very specific place. And he immediately calmed down. And I just sat there and he held my hand on his wrist. Mm. And just knowing that somebody was there with that pressure and he immediately calmed down. Mm. So it really looked like he was looking for a verbal answer and verbal comfort. And I'm a words guy, like words, like to me, like words are how you fix the the world, but not for him. Like words are nothing. Words are worse than nothing. What he needed was for me to sit there with my hand on that specific spot. And it didn't fix it, but it gave him the comfort that he needed to slow his heart rate, to regulate his breathing and to get through that moment. So that's just, just an example. It's a beautiful story about learning. Like it's, it's a, it's learning his language, learning his needs, being present, being present enough that you were taking the time to find that out, even if it took you longer than you wish it had, which is often the way we learn. Right. You know, and, and it, to me, it's also a a beautiful example of how our, our presence can be so powerful with people just being willing to sit with them and hold space for whatever it is they're in by sitting and holding his wrist in that specific way. You know, you didn't need to actually say much. I'm a words person too. So, um, (laughs) you know, but we don't always need to say much. Sometimes we just need to show up and let the other person know we're with them in it. And you were able to figure that out and what a difference it made. Yeah. 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 Um, are there other examples that you have of situations where you found things that help people in grief might not have been what you expected or something that, you know, stands out in your memory in terms of of supporting someone in a grieving process. I I think you're right. You know, there's often a more understanding than people um, believe, right? Yeah. But it, 
it comes out differently. It looks different. Yeah. Um, so I worked with a man for quite a few years uh, who had a lot of behavioral con- concerns, as we say in the field. Uh, he was very, very aggressive, um, often quite physically violent. And he also had a very close close relationship with his family. And they were wonderful, wonderful people. His dad was the head of medicine at a hospital. Um, his mom helped run our association for many, many years. Like they were pillars of the community. They were a hundred percent there for him for his entire life and like ensured that he had the absolute best, um, support. And I worked with him at the very end of their lives. They were both in their eighties and, uh, his mom passed away um, and his dad followed very soon after. And we were very, very con- like, concerned because he was already not doing well. And we really didn't know how he was going to cope with such a fundamental loss. And he did absolutely fine. I accompanied him to his mom's fun- funeral, which was, I mean, that's the thing about my job is you just find yourself in these scenarios that you absolutely have no place being in but you're sort of the one who's available to be there. And like, we didn't know how he would take it. He was a pallbearer. We didn't know if he was going to be able to handle it. We didn't know how, how he would respond. And he put, he put on his suit and he showed up and he carried his mother's body. And he stood up there with his brother and his uncles and his father and like was just absolutely amazing and was amazing after and after his father's death. Um, nothing that we thought was going to happen happened like absolutely nothing. And I think he had already processed it. Like, I think that we, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I do, but like our, our expectations of him were very low and he, he was completely equal to the task and he dealt with it in his own, in his own way and in a healthy way. And we were not involved in that um, other than getting out of his way. And not saying like, no, you shouldn't go to this funeral because you might have a meltdown, which was a lot of people's, it was certainly on the, on the uh, table, but, um, we got out of his way and we let him, we let him grieve and he did, and he moved on and he's doing, he's doing well. Nice. Uh, yeah. That's a good example of, you know, how our expectations or our assumptions can trip us up sometimes if we Uh let them, right? You know, we, we, it's true sometimes that past behavior can predict future behavior, but it's not always true. And when we make space for people to do and what they're going to do and show us how they're changing or how they're evolving, then we can have something beautiful happen like this man who's able to stand up and um, act on behalf of his mom and uh, do his process right in his way. And, you know, I think even the idea of, you know, worrying that a meltdown would happen is such a, a bit of a challenge in itself because really meltdowns are just an expression of feeling, right? Absolutely. I mean, everything is an expression of feeling. It's how we communicate. But if your last surviving parent passes away, when else are, if you don't have permission to have feeling, then when do you have permission to have feeling? Exactly. You know? Exactly. So I sort of sometimes think that uh, we disallow the big, the big difficult feelings we try to contain and control them just like we try and contain and control other people mm-hmm. sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I don't know that that always serves us. I think sometimes there's a place for that, that just accepting that the that behavior that we see is an, is a a way of of letting out feelings and letting them move through us. And when people, you know, don't always have words, behavior is their way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Behavior is communication always. Like that's that's what it is. Yeah. So behavior is communication and we if we're paying attention, we can help people through the feelings in a way that serves them, even if it just needs a release in some kind of form like that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, And I mean, I also have to say is like, I have not had big griefs of my life yet. Like my turn's coming. And I'm, I think that I've learned a lot from the people that I support. And I think that I'm in, I'm in much better standing when my time comes because I've seen their courage and I've seen them go through it and um they've they've taught me i mean they they teach me so many things every day but this is this is a big one because for a person with with a developmental disability like especially the law the loss of a parent is like it's it's the end of the world and in many many ways because usually like those are the people who have been everything to them and often much longer than in most families, like really until, until death. And often it's when that person is in their fifties or, or, uh, sixties. I support a man whose mother is 92 and, um, until fairly recently, like she was still coming, um, and helping him bathe almost every night, bringing him food, calling to make sure he was warm, warm enough like that. That connection is incredibly, incredibly strong. Well, and I think, I think at the heart of grief, we have connection, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's that love, that unconditional love that shows up every day and all the ways that parents have shown up for their children in this way. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. I think that, that that's, it is the end of the world as they know it, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's true for a lot of people when their parents pass you know, um, but it's especially true if that's been the one source of unconditional love and understanding that you've had consistently all yeah. your life and the world is so confusing. Yes. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. So is there, is there anything that you think that you would like to share with people who support folks with in, intellectual or developmental disabilities? Um, is there something that you want people to take away from our conversation today, if they're supporting someone in their, in their life with different abilities that might be facing grief. I think just, um, I think the main thing I would want to say is just don't like never underestimate the power of just being physically present with that, that person. Like I torture myself a lot about not being able to do more to help the people that I support move forward in their lives um, because I see the good life as a certain thing and I'm seeing it through my, through my lens and I want to help them achieve that. But I've found over and over again, and especially in times of loss and in times of different kinds of tragedy, like really the only thing that really mattered was that I was there and I, I kept showing up. And often it's in ways like I, I feel like I'm not, I'm, I have nothing to offer 
like other than physically helping this person get their breakfast and get clean and be warm, which the absolute basics, but like, you don't, you don't know what it means to someone for, to have the same person there. And if that person is listening to them, like that's, it's really, it's sort of the least we can do, but it's also the most in many ways. And I think like really, like when I've been supporting someone who is grieving, I felt like really the best and only thing that I can give them is to be a consistent presence who's going to let them be them and not leave. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope I learn more than that. But I think everything that I've been able to that's actually been a value I've learned because I've just been there for long enough. So I yeah. mean, I, th- I think that I think that's actually quite beautiful. And something that we can use with everybody, this idea yes. of, of showing up with authentic presence and unconditionally accepting the person in front of us and whatever state they're in, trying to understand their viewpoint, their worldview, and offer them what they need, which might only be just be just our presence, just being there. Yeah. Right. And if I could say one one other thing. Um if there are any parents of a person with a developmental disability that are that are listening that are afraid of what's going to happen to their kid after they are gone and i know a lot a lot of these families and like that is that is the fear um and it's 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 grounded like that yeah. i get it um it's real but i'd like to say um don't underestimate the lasting power of your love and i'm going to start to cry here i apologize but oh, sorry. um, um <laughs> sorry that's okay. It's um, take your time. It's a it's a beautiful love, isn't it? It is, and the thing is that it it lasts in ways that you won't understand. But I've supported a lot of people who were abandoned at birth to the institutional system, um, and you you can always tell because they're always seeking love that they didn't receive for various reasons. And then I've supported people who were loved by their families and it's like they have a magic spell on them. Mm. Sorry, you're gonna have to cut a lot of this. Um, it's, it's fine. So cry it's, away here. Um, but that, you know, the power of our feelings, Mike, right? Yeah. The power of our feelings. And, and what you're witnessing is you're witnessing the power of love in a person's life and the magic that it brings when someone just yeah. knows that they are loved yeah. and then they carry on. And I love the idea of it as a magic spell. Well, I support a woman who like just had this amazing, amazing family and her, her parents died. I probably at least 15 or 20 years ago, but it's just stayed with her how much they loved her. And she sees herself with so much value because of that. Even though, I mean, she lived in an institution for many years. Um, she lived in a, group, in a group home now, which is not the most humanizing place in the world. We do our best, but it's, it's part of the system. She is incapable of believing that anybody doesn't love her. Like, there have been people who, like, have treated her very badly, and she just, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't stick. Like, she just, she cannot conceive of not being loved. And, um... I used to take her for walks around around the neighborhood and she'd point out people to me and be like, there's my grandma, there's my mom. Um, and um, sorry, I apologize. <laughs> Don't apologize. It's all real. She, um, 
she just thought that everyone was her family and she knew they were dead, but they were also just there. <laughs> she felt um, their she felt their love in people all around her because yeah, yeah. their love was so present when they were with her. And um this nothing could touch her because she had been raised um to believe she was loved. So I just say, um sorry, it's been up. <laughs> A little rough December. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, so I just want to say that to those parents because I know you're out there and I hope you're listening that your kids are going to be okay. Yep. Because you love them. Because you love exactly. them and they know it. Exactly. Uh, that's a beautiful message. And it is. It's, Thank uh, you. Sorry. It's, don't, don't, <laughs> I, I mean it. Don't apologize. Yeah. Hey, listen, I do. I do grief for a living and tears yeah. are one of our healthiest ways of moving emotions through us. Right. The, yeah. the beauty of it all is that mm -hmm. you, you see this, you witness this as a part of your everyday work and you have, and you have the opportunity to, to show us that and translate it and tell us about it and the power of the emotion in the people that you support translates into the power of the story that might help other people know that love is enough it is it is it's it's the the only thing that is it doesn't matter how strong the system is um which is yep yeah yeah when, when we love people and we can be with them in love and and I mean, I say like, I say that in a, in a generic way, you are with the people that you support in love, providing them a loving, caring support by being real and showing up for them. And for some of them, their families have also done that. For some of them, their families were unable to do that for lots of reasons. Sure. For lots of reasons. Yes. Right? Often and, direct to government intervention. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our, our systems harm people, but they are so also, our systems are also what we have. Yes. Right. So exactly. when someone with your kind of heart is working within a system, it mitigates that harm in some ways because you show up with authentic love and support the people that are in front of you in the ways that you best can, that meet their needs as best you can. And that is what sustains people, what helps people showing up for them in that way. Whether they received love before or not, the way that you show up and support them with that compassionate presence works too. And that everybody listening to this podcast episode can do that too. We can show up for other people with compassionate presence and just offer them unconditional love and kindness. And then yes. we make we make yes. the world a better place, right, Mike? You and me, we've got I this hope so. solved. <laughs> yeah, we figured it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today for the podcast episode and um, sharing with me your insights that so, so that we can share it with um, a wider audience through the Grief Stories platform. Um, I am really grateful that you're out in the world doing the work that you do with your heart open the way it is. Well, same to you. And thank you for letting me be a part of what you're doing. I really right. appreciate it. Excellent. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike.
Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we realize that these stories may be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.